Okay, everybody, will you look at all that smoke out there in California? Look at that sky. It's full of smoke. No, it isn't. It's a trick. That's actually fog. Because ordinary day. No, today is not like any other day. While you thought that was fog, nope. The air quality went from 160 to 26 in the last day. That, my friends, is not smoke. It was actually blue sky yesterday. And today, for the first time in approximately a month, I'm going to do something called, wait for it, going outside. Yeah. I had a little uh, medical surgery stuff, so I couldn't do any exercise for several weeks. And as soon as I was ready to go back outside, the forest fires hit. And then the air quality was too low to exercise outside. But last night, I don't know if the wind changed or what, but we went from pretty darn bad to not looking so bad. I think this is just fog. should clear up a little bit. Anyway, this is not the only thing that's starting to go right. What you're seeing is the third act of all third acts. There's something happening. Can you feel it? This is not like other days. There's something happening. It's everywhere. It's in, it's in a million different ways and a million different things. Things are almost waking up. It's almost like the people and the, the stuff and the systems are becoming almost sentient. And you're going to see a lot of things that were going wrong start to go right. Let me give you some examples. We'll talk about those uh, over the course of the next few minutes. But I wanted to do first some fact-checking and corrections. So uh, yesterday I had two, uh, two really uh, astounding mistakes. <laughs> so let me collect, correct them both. Number one mistake is that I incorrectly said that uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of New York, and Kimberly Guilfoyle shared a child. I've been corrected that it's Kimberly's child from a subsequent marriage. So that's number one, correction. Number two, have I ever told you that I don't have uh, the capacity for embarrassment anymore? I used to. I used to be embarrassed at everything. But I've somehow learned to do incredibly embarrassing and stupid things in public. doesn't bother me a bit. And it's a really good superpower. You should try to develop it. This is a perfect case in point. I don't know if this is the stupidest thing I've ever done in public, but it might be. (laughs) It could totally might be. Uh, Let me tell you this, and we'll get to the simultaneous sip. So uh, yesterday, uh, I think I said it on uh, uh, on another podcast as well, so I have to correct that later. I said that there was a map of, of California that showed all the fires. And I cheekily said, why did the fires stop at the border of Canada? It must be that they do better forest management, because otherwise, obviously, there would be slop over into Canada. And I felt pretty smart about that. Pretty darn smart. If I, if I do say so myself, it was insightful. It was insightful. 
Uh, but there was one little problem with that insight, which was pointed out to me by literally everybody with a brain. <laughs> you know what the problem was, right? It was a problem. It was a map of California fires. So it only showed the, the fires in California because it was a map of California fires. <laughs> it showed Canada on the map, but it didn't care about them. Somebody followed up and showed me a map of Canadian fires that show no fires in California, to which I said, oh, not my finest moment. But before we get into more of that, what do we need more than just about anything in the world? I think it's a simultaneous sip. And all you need is a copper mug or a glass, a tanker, chalice or stein, a canteen, joker, flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure, the dopamine here of the day, the thing that makes everything better. It's called the simultaneous sip. And we are in the middle of the third act, folks, coming to the other side. Sip with me. Go. Oh, so good. All right, uh, Rasmussen has a poll coming out in, I think, uh, two hours. Um, I won't tell you what the Rasmussen poll says, but if you like your President Trump's, I think you're going to like it. So look for the Rasmussen poll. Good news. That's all I'm going to tell you. Um, I made a a cheeky comment uh, on Twitter that I would like to repeat. (laughs) Rarely, rarely in the course of anybody's life do they get to say something like I'm going to say. And here it goes. I wrote a book called Win Bigly. You can see it on the shelf behind me if you're watching. And it's a book about how to persuade. And it was specifically about President Trump's skill for persuasion. And um, Woodward, in his book, uh, and I think in part of his audio tapes or something, noted that, um, that Jared Kushner had told Woodward to read Win Bigley to understand the president better. And um, so now we know that, you know, Jared read Win Bigley. I happen to know a few other people in the, in the White House who have read Win Bigley. Now, Win Bigley is a book that would teach you how to persuade somebody to do something that they had not done before and maybe didn't want to do before. And it looks like maybe as many nine countries in the Middle East will be signing peace agreements, or at least agreements, which effectively are peace agreements. Now, I am not going to say that if I had not written that book that we wouldn't get a good result. Because the way it works, and I think we all agree on the rules, the rules are the rules. The boss gets the credit. Because the boss also gets the blame, right? It's just sort of how it works. Um, So obviously President Trump gets the credit. He's the one who brought in Jared. He's the one Jared brought in his staff. So the president gets any credit for the Middle East. But it is kind of hilarious, kind of hilarious, that my book was out there at the same time. Did it make a difference? No way to know. I won't make that claim because... There's no way to know, but it is funny, and I couldn't help, I couldn't help, uh, <laughs> but mentioning it. 
All right. So I can't guarantee that everybody who wins Win Bigly, my book, will uh, create peace in the Middle East. All I can tell you for sure is that 100% of the people who did read it did make peace in the Middle East, but that doesn't mean it's causation. All right. Um, here's the funniest thing that's happening right now. The president did a lot of things or was accused of a lot of things that later became uh, you know, falsified. But for whatever reason, and I guess the reason is the way people are wired, they don't really learn from their mistakes, meaning that you would have thought, if you lived in some kind of a rational world, you would have thought that when Democrats found out that Russian collusion was completely made up, just completely made up, and it was almost a, an overthrow of the government if it worked, you would think that people who learned that about their own side would say, whoa, 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 from now on, I'm not going to trust my side because they just did the biggest prank in the world with this Russia collusion hoax. But you observed that that did not happen, right? Instead, uh, and I'll bet you've experienced this, they would say, no, it's been proven. And you'd say, no, that's the opposite of what happened. It was proven not to exist, or at least you can't prove something's a negative, but no evidence was found. And then you've been down this hoax funnel before. People will retreat from, okay, okay, they didn't find collusion per se. But a lot of people went to jail. And then you say, for different reasons, for different reasons. And then they say, well, but what about that Russian troll farm? They were certainly interfering. And then you say, no, that's a different conversation. We were talking about collusion, not a Russian troll farm made a few memes that looked like a sixth grader made them. That did happen. The collusion did not. Now, what do people say when you've taken them the hoax, you've debunked everything they've said, you've agreed that Russia did some bad stuff during the Obama administration? What, do you, what, what happens next? You know what happens next. They'll change the subject, and then if you circle back to them in a week, and you say, well, you know, as we discussed last week, there's no Russian collusion. Well, they say, yeah, that's what we decided last week. Nope. Never. <laughs> Not once will you see this happen. What will they do instead? They'll say there was Russian collusion. There were those Russian troll farms. And what about those people who got arrested? It will be as if the conversation never happened. Right? You've all been there. I'll bet every one of you has had that conversation where you go down the hoax, funnel, and then they just change the subject and circle back to the top of it in a week like it never happened. But there are some topics that are so big and so stark that maybe you can't do that. And this Middle East business looks like it would be that. But this morning I was looking to see how the, the tortured souls would try to explain why this is happening. And I'm seeing people saying, how could it be a peace deal if Israel wasn't at war with Bahrain? <laughs> how could it be a peace deal if Israel isn't at war with Saudi Arabia? What kind of peace deal is it if it's the UAE? We're not, nobody was at war with the UAE. Well, that is you know, the, uh, the child's view of what's going on, of course. But they found something. They found something. 
However, I would argue that the overall, the Middle East stuff is so obviously good and so obviously only because of Trump and his team, you know, Jared's team, it's only happening because of them. That is hard to escape. It's really hard to escape. And it is also hard to escape the, all the, quote, smart people, the John Brennans of the world, the, all the critics, have criticized this president on every single move, from killing Soleimani to canceling the Iran deal to moving the embassy to recognizing the Golan Heights, just one thing after another. It's a mistake. It's going to cause us trouble. And I've been telling you since the start that those were all the right things to do to get the result that they get. I will remind you what I was saying when these were happening. By creating a situation in which Israel wasn't negotiating for peace, but rather just taking what they wanted, I think we'll move our embassy. I think we'll take the Golan Heights. I think we'll just declare some territory over here, and that's your territory, and this is ours. What I said was that as long as Israel was getting stronger and nobody else was, I mean, at least the Palestinians weren't, but as long as Israel was doing great, it would create this situation where it looked like they better do a deal quickly. Because the quickly, the faster they do the deal, the faster they can you know, lock in some benefits for themselves. Because Israel was just going to keep marching. They were just going to keep doing whatever they wanted to do. And they were thinking, well... Maybe this is the time. So I would argue that the president set up exactly the right situation and set the table perfectly by, by not being the way we used to be, for one thing. Shaking the box, working the people. Uh, and I think that they also probably made a good story about what's in it for everybody. So I think the story that uh, Jared started out with was, look how good you could be doing. You know, you won't always have oil, right? That's the thing that the Middle East is worrying about now. Wait a minute, maybe oil isn't going to be the future, because it isn't. So now they have to figure out how to cooperate, because they can't just say, we don't have to cooperate. Look at all our oil. If you want oil, well, you're going to have to do what we want. And now, when it's obvious that we'll get to a point not too long, where we don't need oil as much, and, and also the president's uh, making the United States independent, energy independent, was a big part of that. So I would say every part of this, this the president set up and set the table. And congratulations to everybody who made that work. Um, so what would have happened if everybody uh, who gave President Trump advice about... Uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and that ugliness with Khashoggi, what would happen if the president had taken all of their advice, all the smart people, every smart people, the people on the left, there were some people on the right, pretty much it was just everybody against Trump, as I remember it. And they said, no, no, you've got to come much harder on Saudi Arabia. What did I say? What I said was, you can't make that guy come back alive, right? Khashoggi's dead. You can't make him come back alive. But here's what you can do. You can make Saudi Arabia owe you a favor. <laughs> you can do that. 
And that's what the president did. He created an asset out of nothing because it, you know, it wasn't his actions that killed Khashoggi. It just happened because of Saudi Arabia, presumably. And the president took that opportunity to say, what if I go the opposite direction, stay good to him? How much does he owe me for, getting, for having his back? Now, I don't know if they ever had a direct conversation about that, but do you need to? Do you need to have a direct conversation when somebody has your back in a major way? I mean, in the world of having somebody's back, you've never seen anything like this. This is the gutsiest thing you'll ever see, probably in public. So the president had had uh, the, the crown prince's back on that, for good or bad. You, you might think that if you were looking at that in isolation, it would be the worst thing in the world. I'd probably agree. In isolation, it's just about the worst thing in the world. I mean, really, it's just about the worst thing in the world. You know, dismembering a guy. Um, but the president figured out how to turn it into an asset, and the larger benefits could be quite impressive. It will never pay for the life of a person, exactly, but he did capitalize on what was there. All right. Um, here's some more on other things. So it feels to me there's also a change coming. So you're seeing the, you know, the, the change with the Middle East. Uh, you're seeing that the Rasmussen poll is showing that people are having a different opinion about the president. I believe that the longer the protests go, the more people's minds about them will shift toward increasingly negative. They're already negative, but even increasingly so. So that's another shift. And I think that um, critical race theory has probably been uh, surfaced to the point where more people know what it is, and then also debunked by at least some portion of the public, even though some still like it. So I think there's just a lot happening, big, big, big changes in the way we're thinking about stuff. There are big changes in the world, but also in the way we're thinking of things. Um, And here's one of the changes. There was a story out of Oregon, got caught on film, where a woman caught a guy trying to set fire, it looked like, allegedly. He had some matches, and he was trying to set fire to uh, some forest on her property, it looked like. And she caught him. She had a gun in the car. She pulls him over, and she, she held him until he was arrested. He said he was going to go for a smoke, but he didn't have cigarettes. Right? He just had matches, and he was trying to light her forest. Now, how do you feel about climate change when you know that they keep arresting arsonists? Every time they arrest another arsonist, Climate change doesn't look quite the thing that you thought it was before. Every time you hear people like Michael Schellenberger and you know, others now saying quite loudly that forest management is the big thing, and if you took care of that, it's, it might still get warmer. It might still get warmer, but it won't be the forest fire problem if you take care of the, uh, the brush. But watching a citizen arrest an arsonist and it feels like the beginning of a trend. You saw there was, a, uh, there was a man who got arrested. I don't know the details, but he had, a, he had a gun inside his house. He was surrounded by Black Lives Matter, and they arrested him. I don't know the details of that yet, but what you're going to see is that the suburban Americans are armed to the teeth. 
They are really armed. Was it Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where the last bunch of riots were? And I read that the uh, judge just totally threw the book at the rioters who got arrested. So there's a judge in Pennsylvania who's just putting the hammer down on the rioters. Have you seen that before? I think it's the first time I've seen a judge just come down with full force and say, we're going we're gonna to put the hammer down on these people. At the same time, another judge elsewhere has decided, um, I guess there are going to be arrests, not a judge, but the, uh, apparently there have been arrests of the Black Lives Matter protesters who disturbed and, and threw over tables or whatever they were doing in restaurants. So these are the ones who didn't hurt anybody, but they came in and they messed up the restaurants and you know, drank their beverages and stuff like that, and they're actually going to arrested. Did you think that they would be arrested? I didn't. I didn't think there was any chance that any of those people, even though they were on film, doing something that looked vaguely illegal to me, I didn't know exactly what laws were getting broken, but it looked illegal, and they're actually getting arrested. Now, I always talk about the slippery slope not being real. It, it is real in the sense that things do go too far. Right? But there is always a counterforce that pops up before it goes to the point where we all die. Right? And we've definitely gone too far. That's where we're at now. And you're seeing you know, millions of residents just making independent decisions. Some are judge, judges. Some are private citizens. Some are just buying guns. Some people are just fed up. Some people are the police themselves. And I think you're just going to see this collective, okay, that's far enough. That's far enough. What do you think about Black Lives Matter and their, uh, and their legitimate desire for a fairer world? Well, I'll give you my opinion. If you had asked me six months ago, I would say, well, in fact, I, I tried to work with Black Lives Matter because I took it so seriously that I thought, well, maybe I can help. I'd like to be a productive citizen. If, if uh, black lives need a little extra help, and everybody's agreeing that would be a good place to put some work, I'll put some work there. I'll put some of my money there. I'll put some work there. See what I can do. <clears throat> what do I think now? After the protests slash riots slash looting. Now I think Black Lives Matter is a bad organization. No better in my mind, the organizers, not, not the individual people. But in my mind, the organizers are effectively the same as Ku Klux Klan at this point in terms of how I think of them. Now, I'm not talking about historic Ku Klux Klan, which was worse. But I talk about Ku Klux Klan today, just the way it's currently organized. Very similar to Black Lives Matter. To me, there's no difference. And keep in mind that was it only one year ago, two years ago, that I had actually volunteered to help them. I had volunteered to help. And a year from now, I equate them with the KKK. I don't see a a significant difference in terms of uh, how bad it is, which is different from the members who are legitimately protesting about racial equality. Lots of people have good intentions, but in terms of the organization, effectively the KKK for all practical purposes. Now, I don't mean that they're the same. I mean, they're, they're equally... Uh, a bad influence in the public. All right. Um, and it could have been good. It's too bad. Um, 
here's something I borrowed from the Panda Tribune, that, that being a Twitter account that I follow, the Panda Tramp Tribune. And I stole this idea and reworded it, but I asked this question. If you teach people critical race theory before you teach them critical reasoning, what is the predictable outcome? Think about it. Critical race theory is kind of complicated in a way. You know, you can't really explain it in a sentence. It takes a little work to get what the whole idea is. So what happens if you teach people that, but you have not given them the, let's say, prerequisite course of how to compare things and how to think well? What is the obvious thing that that would lead to? What you see. <laughs> that you had to get here. You could have predicted it easily. We're going to teach you this, but we're not going to teach you how to think about things productively and compare things right. For example, if Black Lives Matter knew how to compare things right, they would say, okay, let's see uh, people stopped by police, and we're only going to look at people who have been stopped by police. How does that go? And then you look at the statistics. And then you say, okay, we'll take it a little bit deeper. How about people who were stopped by police and actively resisted arrest? How many of them were white? How many were black? And then you go a little deeper. And you say, how many of the police officers themselves were black? Because that matters too, right? That matters. So if the people learning um, critical race theory had first learned how to analyze things, just the basics of how to compare things, they would have been prepared to listen to critical race theory And I think their conclusion would have been something like this. Yes, there's some ripple effect from slavery. There are other issues. Yes, there is systemic racism. It's real. But what do you do about it? If you don't have critical thinking, you say to yourself, it looks like white people caused this problem historically, and therefore white people must fix it. That's because you skipped critical thinking. Critical thinking doesn't say that. Critical thinking does not say somebody who looked like you and had your DNA and had your family connection caused the problem, therefore you have to fix it. There's no logical connection to that. The logical way would be we have this set of problems, we can identify where the source is, but what's the best solution? And the best solution would be something like strategy, something like learning not to resist police, something like better education, something like getting rid of the police, I'm sorry, the, getting rid of the uh, teachers' unions. Maybe there's something about you know, better, better police uh, practices as well. That's what it would look like. It wouldn't look like what we see now. What you're seeing now is people who skipped the prerequisite course for critical race theory. And um, I remember I taught you that I taught you that you can't often persuade against a bad idea. When somebody gets a bad idea in their head, it's, it's just stuck. It's hard to change anybody's idea on anything. So if people have the critical race theory stuck in their head, erasing it or changing their mind, almost impossible. But what if you agreed and amplified? I teach you this trick before. So what if you agreed, as I just did, that the that the the conceptual stuff is actually pretty good to know. I think it would be useful for anybody to have that as a background and an education to inform their current choices. 
to the extent that it makes any difference. But suppose you said critical race theory is great, and here's how to make it even better. All right? We don't want to waste it because it's so valuable. <clears throat> so instead of saying it's the worst thing in the world, you go the other direction and say, let's, let's really beef this up. But obviously you need a prerequisite course. Prerequisite course is how to compare things. Once you're ready with that, and you've learned a little bit about strategy and life strategy maybe, then you have a good base to take this incredibly important concept of critical race theory, but you're ready. You, you know how to handle it in its proper context. So you could agree and amplify to the point where you would make it a, a positive, in theory. Obviously, all of this stuff is deeply difficult. All right. Um, I think the, the psychology that's happening to the country because of the Middle East is bigger than you think. Because I've said this before, that, um, and I, I think this will be my favorite thing to say, that President Trump is bad at easy stuff. And by easy stuff, I mean anything that Joe Biden says in public is easy stuff. Right? Joe Biden just says, what is the thing I'm supposed to say? Okay, can you write that on the teleprompter for me so I can read it? All right, uh, and I'll read it. That's easy stuff. Everybody can read the thing you're supposed to say. President Trump, either he chooses not to or he's not good at it, but it ends up looking the same. He just doesn't do easy stuff. He's just not, not good at it or he doesn't care or something. But the net result is that he's not good at easy stuff. But man, is he good at impossible stuff. The impossible stuff? I mean, literally things that people said, well, that can't be done. You can't do all that stuff in the Middle East and expect to get a good outcome. What's happening? I don't understand what's happening. You did everything wrong, according to me, me being somebody else. How can you get such a good result? And if you do the impossible often enough, what does it do to people's minds? I got, I got one word for you. America. America. What, the most defining characteristic of the founding of this country? Give me one word. Give me one word that describes the American Revolution better than any other word. You ready? That one word that explains the American birth, the most critical thing that happened to our future in America, the revolution, George Washington, one word, impossible. Impossible. We, the, the founders of this country set out to defeat the biggest military power of its day. And then did. Then they did. And not only did they beat the most impressive military power of its day, but then they built this document that would last hundreds of years and you know, keep us on the right path and also make the United States not just pretty good, but the most dominant country in civilization. China's doing pretty well, too, but you know what I mean. And that, I've always thought that that bit of uh, starting from the impossible permeates everything about the way you think. 
When Steve Jobs, do you know the story of Steve Jobs? He was a teenager, and he wanted to build a computer. And he, he called, uh, was it uh, Hewlett or Packard? I can't remember, one of the Hewlett-Packard guys. Just called a billionaire at home. He's a teenager. Steve Jobs is a teenager. He calls a billionaire at home, says, I want to build a computer, but I need some parts that you might have. Can you give me some parts? And he did. <laughs> he gave him some parts. And then Wozniak and Jobs built a computer. Now, if, if anybody had asked you, was that possible? Well, in the sense that anything's possible, but kind of looked impossible. How about the Wright brothers? How about going to the moon? How about Elon Musk building first the Tesla car and then you know, getting ready to, to go to Mars? It's all impossible. One of the things that America has as its just core DNA is that, is that impossible? Okay, watch this. Hold my beer. Hold my beer should be the national, it should be the national slogan, right? Because America does impossible things three times before lunch. It's kind of really built into who we are. That you tell me I can't do that, I'm really interested now, all right? So when you watch the President of the United States, the person who is, according to all the smart people, couldn't possibly do this thing, whatever the thing is and that you're talking about at the moment, and then you watch him do it, first getting elected, that was kind of impossible, wasn't it? Just getting elected for Trump seemed pretty impossible. Did that. How about uh, shaking hands with Kim Jong-un and basically defusing that whole situation? Did that seem possible? Hold my beer. And when you watch the Middle East coming together in a, in a big way, and you watch even, let's say, uh, the decoupling from China, which is on the way, by the way. We are literally decoupling from China one of the best economic things that could ever happen to this country. It's a whole bunch of impossibles. It's just one impossible thing after another. And the more you watch Trump, and, and I, I hate to... Um, it's hard to not say Jared Kushner in the same sentence because you know this is a, a team effort, and so Kushner needs to get you know, A++++ on this, as well as his staff. And you watch him do the impossible, and what does it do to your mind? You're an entrepreneur, and you're thinking, I couldn't do that before, that's impossible. And then you watch people do impossible stuff all day long on TV, the president in particular. It changes you. So that's the big question. The, the, big, the big change is how we're thinking about everything. Um... Why has Antifa never been reframed? Uh, there's something missing here. You know how if you're talking about uh, abortion, you've got the people who say it's, uh, it's a question of choice, and then the other side says it's a question of life. So both sides have framed it in the best possible way for their argument. But with Antifa, they've gotten away with we're anti-fascist, therefore if you're against us, you're a fascist, and they get away with that. Why has nobody been able to uh, reframe Antifa? Is it the fact that the formulation of anti-fascist is just really good in terms of powerful you know, word combinations 
and that there's just no way to get in there and reframe that thing? I don't know. Um, so my, my suggestion had been to reframe it as anti-capitalist because there are very few people in this country who are legitimately anti-capitalism. And the fascism, the way it's used, is capitalism because they would not be happy with Bernie either. Um, an interesting little side note, Kanye is getting really active on Twitter today. And he's complaining about all the big music industry and entertainment industry contracts, but I think he's extended it to contracts in general. And the point about how they're written in legalese, so you don't know exactly what you're getting, and it's very unfair for the artists because they're the least capable of knowing what they signed. An artist is not a lawyer. So if they work with lawyers, against lawyers, they don't really know what they've signed. And you know, I've got lots of experience with contracts, both in my corporate world, that's what I did for a living for a while, and in my Dilbert life, which is just nothing but contracts all day long, contracts and contracts. So I'm you know, fairly, fairly experienced at doing that stuff. But Kanye's point, I am so in favor of, to the point where I had thought that one of the things we should do in this country is create, I say this a million times, create brand new towns and cities from scratch where we just say, all right, throw out all the rules. If you were going to build a city from scratch, knowing what we, do, what we know today, what would you do right and what would you do wrong? For example, I would say that you can't have legalese in this town. You can have contracts, but they have to be written in English. Uh, by the way, in my early corporate days, I'd often get contracts from my lawyer, who you know, some response to something else that we had to do, and I would take my lawyer's legalese and I would just rewrite it into uh, three paragraphs in English. And then I would give it back to my lawyer and say, okay, this is what it would look like if you wrote it in real people language. Is there anything wrong with this? And my lawyer would look at it and go, nope, <laughs> nope, there's nothing wrong with it. You can actually rewrite what I wrote in English language so that other people would know exactly what you mean and nobody will be confused. And there was no problem at all. It's just that if you're a lawyer, you don't do it because you need to keep up appearances. You want to make sure you've covered 100% of your risk, whereas you know, maybe I got 99. So I would, see a, I would see a town that has no legalese. I would want the insurance to be uh, the government. There would be no insurance of any kind for your car, your health insurance, your house, or anything except the government and the profit from that would be your taxes. So you wouldn't pay taxes, you would just buy insurance. Buy insurance for your car, buy insurance for health care. You just buy insurance. And the profit from that would replace taxes. Um, I would also get rid of money so that you only have crypto and nobody has to touch anything and you don't need a bank. So I'd get rid of banks, money, lawyers with legalese. Maybe you need the lawyer still, but I'd get rid of the legalese. I'd get rid of insurance, except by the government. And I'd do a lot of other things. That's just a start. So when you see Kanye talking about this, you might think this is a small deal. That's a small deal, talking about lawyers having complicated language. Isn't that like the smallest deal you could work on? Nope. Because that language is a confusopoly. It's designed to make you not know what you're signing. 
It's a big problem. I am so with Kanye on this, and he has definitely identified a genuine problem of major magnitude to a lot of people. So good luck, on, good luck Kanye, on that. Um, I've noticed that there's a type of person I debate with online. Recently, there was this guy with uh, hashtag BLM and hashtag ACAB, meaning all cops are bastards, in his profile. So I, I knew what I was getting. But he started out with his list of hoaxes, criticizing the president. Oh, he did this, he did this. And one by one, I gave him sources and, and debunked all of his hoaxes. Once he had learned that his worldview was complete garbage, that the most important things he thought about politics and the world and Trump were just hoaxes, you know, and you can look at the sources to see, did he then change his mind? Of course not. He went after me personally. Now, it's one thing that somebody comes and they insult the messenger. I'm used to that. But he decided it was going to be his full-time job, and he would just keep coming back and pestering me personally, having nothing to do with politics, until you know, ultimately I blocked him. But I'm thinking, how sick do you have to be to start with a worldview, somebody debunks your worldview, and then instead of saying, man, I guess i got to work on my worldview a little bit, I think I'm going to have to you know, look into understanding things better. But instead, you go on a personal attack against the person who clarified your worldview. That is sick. That's some sick stuff. There's a, uh, there's a video of uh, Bob De Niro just going through his rants about President Trump. And you can't watch that without thinking, I think the line between political disagreement and mental health has been crossed. That just looks like mental health. It doesn't, and and I don't want to treat it like it's something else, because the moment you try to treat it with respect and say, "Whoa, no," you know, maybe I'll, if I give you some more information, you'll change your mind. That's not what's happening with Robert De Niro. Now, again, I'm not a doctor, and you're not supposed to diagnose people from uh, a distance. But uh, hold my beer, because I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. He's clearly not well. All right, um, I think that one of the reasons that the Woodward book is not having much of an impact, I think we've reached the turning point in people's understanding of the world, you know, the majority of them anyway, where they understand that there's no such thing as a nonfiction book about a person. If you write a nonfiction book about, let's say, math, that's probably just fine. But if you write a, quote, nonfiction book about a real person, living or dead, that's not nonfiction. That is fiction because of the way the data is organized. Because the author can reorganize the data, leave things out, put things in, you know, put things next to each other until he's, he or she has designed a whole narrative and story. That narrative and story is fiction because it had to be created by arranging things. If you didn't create it by arranging the order of so-called facts, it wouldn't be fiction. But it is always arranged. So I think the public now looks at the Woodward book and says, okay, that's some creative fiction there. And they just move on. It feels like we're getting to that point. All right. Um, Netflix has a new content on there called The Devil All the Time. I don't know what it's about. 
But I do know that three things that they have promoted the most recently are something called The Devil All the Time, a TV show that's very popular on Netflix called Lucifer, and um, something that reasonable people are calling pedophilia, you know, that cuties movie. So that's the three things that are highlighted in the era of Obama, <laughs> Obama having a big connection with Netflix. Are these all coincidences? Probably. Probably. They're probably just coincidences, because that's how it works. But there's a lot of them. Just saying. All right. Um, what do you think of the idea of coddling dictators today? You know, I feel like the whole uh, President Trump coddles dictators, that idea is going to take a big hit. Because obviously, as I just mentioned, coddling dictators is probably what's going to get us a major outcome, good outcome in the Middle East. Coddling President Xi in China probably allows us to be much tougher on China and ultimately decouple without making it personal. And you don't want to make it personal because that's a problem. Um, Coddling dictators probably is why uh, North Korea hasn't been much of a risk since about the time that they shook hands. Coddling dictators may have helped with uh, Putin and ISIS. They may have. Uh, I don't know. But it seems to me that this idea of coddling dictators is so childlike, simplistic, that maybe people are understanding the adult version of that. The adult version of coddling dictators is that you treat everybody with respect, but you still go hard. And by the way, the president says that directly. Uh, you know, he, in his own words, but he's not mincing any words. He's saying, I'm absolutely going to treat all of them with respect, and I'm going to push hard. He says it, often. And then we watch him do it. Yep, treated him with respect. Yep, he pushed hard, and something good came out of it. So I think the whole idea of coddling dictators has to be brought up to the, the adult table. There's a story about this Wuhan, uh, or no, not a Wuhan, but there's a story about a Dr. Li Mengyan, who, whose claim is that the, the Chinese Communist Party created the Wuhan China virus, coronavirus, and that they released it on purpose. So she's been on Tucker. I guess she was on Tucker's show last night. And what do you think of that? Do you think that's true? I believe she got uh, knocked off of Twitter for these claims. I need a fact check on that, but it looks like she got kicked off at least some social media, maybe more social medias. Do you believe it? Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no on this. Not because it's not true. I'm going to say that I don't believe it, which doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that the credibility... There's something about this story that just doesn't smell right. Just doesn't smell right. Now, if it turns out that it's true, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure, but if we do find out, then I'll say, oh, okay, well, I guess I was surprised. But, and, and if I tried to tell you what it is about this that's bothering me, I don't exactly know. 
You know, sometimes you can smell something before you see it. There's just something about this that's not quite smelling right. That's all I'll say. Could be true. All right. Um, President Trump, uh, I didn't see it, but I saw the story about it. Apparently Trump retweeted some kind of a meme or other tweet that accused, uh, directly or indirectly, Joe Biden of being a pedophile. And the, the oh-my-God, pearl-clutching part of the public said, oh, no, that is over the line. That's way over the line, calling your, uh, your opponent a pedophile or even just tweeting something that did. Way over the line. That is so far over the line. To which I say, nope, no. No, the, President Trump didn't, he didn't make the rules. He didn't make the rules. The lines that he's playing in were made by somebody else, and he's well within the lines. The fine people hoax is worse than any lie that we've ever seen, especially one that's so easily debunked. You just have to read the transcript to know it's taken out of context. There's nothing worse than the fine people hoax. And I've said that I think it's a big part of the the violence and protests certainly has killed people. I would say that the fine people hoax you can't, you can't identify specific people who were killed. But I think it's fair to say people died because of that, because of the, the feelings that it made. So I don't think that it is out of those bounds, which are ridiculous boundaries. We should not have those boundaries. In fact, the fine people hoax should definitely go away, and the boundaries of what is fair game for politics should be a lot smaller. That's my first choice. But... If we're not going to shrink the field, and that's in bounds, if the fine people hoax is in bounds, an accusation of pedophilia against a person running for president, completely in bounds. Completely. Do I think it's true? No. Do I think it's nice? No. Do I think it informs the public well? No. <laughs> Do I think... Maybe it would be better if it hadn't happened. Maybe. Do I think you know you should be proud of it? No. No. But calling it out of bounds, that is objectively just not true. And I would say that the president doesn't need to... Uh, he doesn't hold back any weapons. He doesn't need to hold back any weapons once the other side has determined what the playing area is. Once they've decided this is the playing area, he's allowed to play there. And he did. So maybe they don't like it so much now. And I got to admit, I'm kind of enjoying the president literally just making up stuff <laughs> and accusing Biden of it because that's what's happening the other way. So if he hadn't been doing this, literally just making stuff up, that he wouldn't be fighting as hard. Uh, so there's that. Uh, and then also the president uh, retweeted uh, a doctored video that he doesn't mention is doctored, in which Biden was giving a speech and he wanted to play the song Despacito from his phone. So he, he turns it on and he plays it into the, the microphone Despacito. Well, somebody cleverly switched the song into some uh, anti-cop song. So you see Biden singing along and looking all happy while apparently an anti-cop song with some bad words in it. Uh, is coming out. And the president tweeted it twice. 
<laughs> he tweeted it once last night, and then he got up in the morning and tweeted it again. <laughs> now, I don't know. Maybe the president knows it's real. Maybe he doesn't know it's real, that video. But uh, it's fair. It's fair. Again, as long as the fine people hoax is out there, as long as the, you know, the drinking bleach hoax is out there, he can do anything he wants. It's all fair. He can literally just make stuff up as he is. Totally fair. Here's an uh, innovation that might be cool. Um, some scientists, engineers, whatever, researchers, found out that you can cool your house more effectively by cooling the walls instead of the people. In other words, they have walls, they have some water running through them in pipes or something. And if you can cool the wall, then the thermal radiation coming off your body will you know, basically get sucked toward the, the place where there's less energy. And it actually gives you the feeling of being cooled off and it's 50% cheaper than regular AC. Um, when I've told you that we shouldn't worry so much about the ultimate outcome of climate change, because we'll, we'll develop lots of new tools that we don't know about. Here's one. Now, I don't know if this is practical, because how practical is it to make a wall that's got water in it? I've got a feeling this isn't quite as practical as I want it to be, but there might be a way to get there. There might be a way to get there. Um, some of you are taking off, I see. All right. So think about that. Um, here are some things that Democrats have learned recently. They learned that Russia collusion was fake and that their side could put that on. They realized that North Korea probably wasn't a fluke, that something good happened there, because the Middle East looks good. If, if North Korea had been the only thing that happened, you might say, well, that was a fluke. He just got lucky with that. But now you've got Serbia, Kosovo, Bahrain, you know, UAE, it's not going to look like a coincidence pretty soon. Um, was it only two weeks ago that everybody on the left who was smart was saying, mail-in votes are totally safe? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with mail-in votes. That can never go wrong. It's been tested in these other states. And then, as I told you yesterday, that even the CNN ran a major story saying that mail-in voting is a nightmare and undependable. That's CNN. So what happened to all those people who had believed their news sources that mail-in voting is totally dependable? And now their own news sources have completely reversed and said, no, actually, it's really, really risky. Do people say, oh, I guess I was fooled? How about uh, the idea of uh, you know, these riots? I think the riots are wearing people down. And the riots have went from, hey, this is maybe good for society to this is just nothing but bad. And Black Lives Matter or Marxists. It feels to me that a lot of the biggest things that Democrats believed are just evaporating. Now, I've done a ton of work, as you know, trying to get rid of the fine people hoax and the bleach drinking hoax. And I feel like it's starting to make a little difference. Uh, how long has it been since Biden mentioned the fine people hoax or the drinking bleach hoax? I, I, I'd, love to get a, uh, I'd love to get a read on that to see if he stopped doing that. I don't know if he did. Uh, yeah, and then people are also learning that the forest fires are 
because of bad management. They're also learning that Green New Deal doesn't work because in California we couldn't even keep the lights on because we got rid of nuclear and, and also gas. And it feels to me like it's just one big thing after another that was something they believed on the left that has unambiguously been proven not true, even to their satisfaction. It'd be one thing to prove to the right that people on the left were wrong about something. That's just ordinary. But to, I think the people on the left are seeing it one after another, just one thing after another that they believed to be true. They're completely untrue. Um, all right. Yeah, somebody says in the comments that we have uh, BLM fatigue. I think that's true. Somebody says they just found 1,600 votes, bail-in votes in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I think you're going to see more and more stories, as, especially as we get closer to the election, of mail-in voting irregularities. It's just going to be one thing after another. But the thing that's really the kicker is CNN reported this. This is right off of CNN that uh, black and minority voters will have the most ballots rejected. Now, I'm assuming that has something to do with income level, which has something to do with education level, which probably is related to how well you can fill out a form correctly. So it has nothing to do with black per se. It's probably just a low-income thing. But it's going to hit some groups harder. How does CNN deal with the fact that they've reported that their preferred method is racist. That's their own reporting. What do they do with that? All right. And I think watching all the cops resign and watching the murder rate zoom and watching basically everything that the protesters said fall to garbage turn out to be wrong. Um, Oh, here's the other thing. Think about how big a deal it is that the schools went from you know, it's going to be really hard to have any kind of school choice to, because of coronavirus, I think it's just going to happen. There are a whole bunch of good things that came out of this coronavirus at the cost, the tremendous cost of life. But, you know, every war does this. You know, World War II produced a whole bunch of domestic benefits. Nobody would have wanted World War II just to get those benefits, but it happens. It's a, it's a fairly predictable outcome. One of the other outcomes, I think, is that future pandemics will be much less risk. Do you think that's true? Don't you think that this experience will teach us how to be ready for the next one and maybe even be able to have a vaccine? And It wouldn't surprise me if the next time we have a vaccine in two months. Right? Maybe. Could. Or, or a, th- uh, a therapeutic in a few months. So now we're seeing a news trickling out of therapeutics that seem to have a big impact. Um, I think by the end of the year, well, let me put it this way. On January 1st, 2021, I plan to party like it's 2021. 2021 is going to be lit because our forest fires are going to be over, at least for the winter. Our coronavirus will be much diminished, if not solved by then. Our economy will be roaring back. And we will have learned a lot. (laughs) We're going to have telehealth. We're going to have school choice. We're going to have delivery of everything. 
we, we did hasten the end of retail uh, in a lot of places, but maybe that needed to happen anyway, because Amazon was going to get there eventually to put them out of business. Um, there's a lot happening. We just went through the worst third act you've, well, of my life. I would say this is the worst third act of my life. Um, but I think, I think we made it. Do you remember, take yourself back to the spring. In the spring, when I was doing two periscopes a day to try to keep people from jumping off a ledge, how many of you were sure that we would make it? Meaning that the country would just survive and that we would all survive. It was dicey, wasn't it? Looked a little dicey. And I told you, no, we're going to be fine. We're, you know, people will die. That's couldn't avoid it, unfortunately. But we are going to pull out of this, and when we do, we're going to be stronger. And that's what's happening. So you're seeing it now. This is the turn. There is something in the air right now, and I, th- I think the Middle East peace stuff was the was the big maybe trigger that just starts bringing all the other stuff together. Things are going our way these these days. Things are going our way. So we'll try to take care of the people who need extra help because there's going to be a lot of them. Do not forget the people who are in the most the biggest hole and then the biggest situation. But man, as of today, things are going the right direction. Finally. Finally. So let's uh, end on that good note, and I will talk to you later.